Get your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 40. As you're doing that, let me welcome those of you that are worshiping at home. Thank you for letting us come into your living room or your space or wherever you are today. And those of us that have gathered here in room, we welcome you together wherever we are. We know the Lord is right where we are. As you find your place in Isaiah 40, let me just take a moment to begin to begin where I left off last week. If you didn't stay to the very end of last week, I made a very important announcement. You heard that announcement this morning. Uh, we've set an end of year giving goal here at Gospel City of nine. Let me show you where that number came from. About two and a half years ago, you announced, we announced to you that we were going to uh, launch this Made for More campaign. We believe that God had made this property for more, so we entered into this facility expansion project. So many of you gave generously, sacrificially. So here we are two and a half years later. The construction is over. We've got this beautiful space. Those of you that have yet to experience it at home, we can't wait to show it to you. Come back as soon as you can. And uh, We've got a wonderful place. Even the technology that is allowing us to meet you there in your home was part of this campaign. That dollar amount was $7.8 million. And the great news I announced to you last week was of the $7.8 million, our church has already paid for out the door, $6.9 million, over 90% of the project is done. That leaves a balance, this little part right here of the chart of $950,000. Even better news is there's been over a million dollars pledged toward that $950,000. These were pre-pandemic pledges and promises, so who knows how that's going to work out. It's been a tough year, but uh, we're trusting that all is going to be provided over time. But I said to you last week, I would love to announce in January of 2021 that our church is once again debt-free. So we're asking you, uh, maybe you can fulfill those pledges early, many of you, and then there have been so many people who have come to Gospel City in the last two and a half years. You weren't around when we pledged, when we entered into this campaign, and uh, you've yet to give it. And so if you haven't been a part of this part of the circle, we'd invite you to be a part of that part of the circle and help us get to the end. And so we're excited about all that God's doing. Uh, God is using those things exponentially to broaden our influence. Many of you are here because there's been space made available. Uh, some of you are very grateful you didn't come two and a half years ago. You're just really great that those people created a $7.8 million space for you to enjoy. So we would love to invite you in, help us complete the circle and get it done. Well, we've been going through parts of this prophet Isaiah, which was written about 2,700 years ago. Uh, we've entered into this season here in 2020 of Advent. I didn't grow up in a church that made a big deal about Advent, but an Advent, the, the Advent is a very important part of the Christian calendar. It just simply means anticipation. We're anticipating the second coming of the Lord Jesus with the same urgency that people in Isaiah's day anticipated the first coming of this promised Messiah, Jesus. And so you can see the parallels, the, the, the space in the timeline of history that you and I occupy is in between the two advents of Jesus. And yet, we are longing with expectation, especially in a year that's filled with so much drama and urgency. We look forward to the day when God will bring a sense of comfort to us. Uh, before we dive into this, let me give you the big idea of the message. Here it is. It is that comfort is promised, comfort for exiles 
Comfort for exiles is found in the promises and the power of God. I'm just interested, is there anybody here that could use a little comfort? Anybody all in favor of comfort in the year 2020? Now, listen, don't get too comfortable. God's goal for you is not for you to be comfortable, but he does have comfort available for people who are exiles. We're gonna unpack that word here in just a minute. But all the comfort that God gives is based on things he's already promised and power that he already has. In this season where it is so uncomfortable to live, be warned, do not look for comfort in created things. Comfort comes from putting your trust in the creator who has made promises and has the power to fulfill those promises. Remember the timeline here that we're working with in Isaiah. The, fir- the very first verse that we looked at, Isaiah 1.1, said that Isaiah was a preacher to four different political administrations. The first of those was Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king. He did what was right in the eyes of God, but he got proud and God sent him a virus and it was incurable and Isaiah died. Sad day for Israel, sad day for Isaiah, but chapter six says that in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He got a new view of God because he needed to look up. He wasn't looking to an earthly king anymore and he said, my eyes have seen the king of kings, he got a view of what was going on in the throne room where Jesus is reigning as king. Well, eventually, um, Uzziah died, he was replaced by the next king, Jotham, and then he was replaced by the next king, Ahaz. We looked at Ahaz's administration last week. Bad king, did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. The, The social structure was unraveling on the inside. The nation was crumbling in the midst of idolatry and they were they were worshiping created things, not only on the inside, but on the outside. Nations were surrounding um, Israel at the time, uh, is, uh, uh, Assyria and, uh, and, and Babylon were threats, and uh, it, was, it was looking like the, they were going to go into exile. And then the next king arrived. His name was Hezekiah, who was one of the best kings, but even one of the best kings didn't do what was right. He made a tragic mistake of showing all the treasures of Israel to the Babylonian king. And the Babylonian king says, I like it so much, I would like to obtain that. And so he invaded, and we're gonna pick up the story right there. And I want you to look at the last three verses of chapter 39, Isaiah 39. Let's begin reading in verse six. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and, the, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. You see, the promise was that they were going into exile. People literally were going to be taken away from their homeland and moved geographically into the land of Babylon. That was the promise. It was God's judgment for their sin. Verse seven says, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom whom you will father shall be taken away 
and shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Is that good news or bad news? Let's have a vote. Is it bad news? That's bad news. Let's see how Hezekiah responds to the bad news. Look at the last verse of chapter 39. Then Hezekiah, verse 8, said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that, have, that you have spoken is, what does your Bible say? It's good. Wait, Hezekiah, are you, are you not understanding the gravity of the situation here? You, your people are going to be carried into exile. Babylon's going to invade. Your nation's going to crumble. Your sons are going to become eunuchs, slaves in Babylon. And Hezekiah said, that's good. Why did he say that? Look at the last little part of the verse. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. This is what he said. The news is bad, but the news is not bad for me because that's not going to happen until I'm gone. That's a temporal perspective on history. The news was bad. Now, I want you to look at your Bible. By the way, if you're new to Gospel City, essential equipment for worship around here is a Bible, all right? Because the preacher's not smart enough to make anything up. He just has to read and report what God has said and recorded for us in the Bible. Now, I want you to look at your Bible. Very important, eyes on your page. Do you see the white space between the end of chapter 39 and the beginning of chapter 40? Do you see the white space? You see that? In that white space, what was promised was fulfilled. God's people were carried off into exile in the space between chapter 39 and chapter 40. Now Isaiah is speaking to the exiles who are now living in Babylon. Now, before we read it, I want to unpack what this word exile means. Let's give a definition to it. An exile is one who has been forcibly removed from his homeland and now living in a land where he or she does not belong. That was literally true of the people of God 2,700 years ago that Isaiah was writing to. But please hear me. That is still true today of those of us who are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are modern day exiles. Do you ever feel like this world is a place where you don't belong? Do you ever feel like you're homesick for a place that you've never been to? Do you ever feel uncomfortable in this world? If you're a follower of Jesus, you should. As a matter of fact, if you're like, no, I feel great around here. I like all the movies and I speak the language and people treat me really nice and I really feel like I, I fit right in around here, then I would question whether or not you're even a Christian. Because Christians are exiles living in a place where we really don't belong. And we are homesick for a place where we have never been. And we are waiting for the day that Christ will come at his second advent and allow us to go to the place where we long 
to be at home in the kingdom of heaven. And I said to you last week, the Bible more often speaks about heaven coming to earth than it does about us dying and going to heaven. Those are true two concepts and talking about a theological concept of the intermediate state and the final state. We don't have time to get into all that. But one day God is going to create a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem where the king, the citizens of the kingdom of God are going to f- no longer feel like exiles. This is a New Testament concept that the apostle Peter picked up on when he wrote his book and he said this. Peter said, conduct yourselves now with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter understood that the time that we are waiting on now for Jesus to come is accurately described as an exile. And so our posture during this time should be parallel to the posture of the exiles to whom Isaiah wrote chapter 40. We need to adopt the posture of an exile. So how are we to live during this time of waiting? There's a certain way that we're to conduct ourselves. He picks up on it in chapter 2 and he says this, I urge you as sojourners, the word sojourner means a temporary resident, somebody that's just passing through. That should be your posture in this world. Hey, I'm just passing through. I'm not sitting, I'm not, you know, putting any roots down here. I got my eyes fixed onto a land to which I am going. I'm a sojourner and I urge you as an exile to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So while we are waiting, We are in a war with our own fleshly passions which are tempted because of all of the things that our eyes see and our hearts feel and our ears hear in this world. The world has declared war on exiles like you and me. That's why it's so hard. It's a fight every day to conduct myself honorably, holy unto the Lord. I'm in a fight. And so often it's so uncomfortable to try to live this life as I'm fighting the war that's going on with the passions of my flesh. If I could just get some help, if I could just get some comfort In this world, it's so uncomfortable living as an exile. God, when are you going to come and deliver me from this? Eyes back on Isaiah 40, chapter 40, verse 1. Let's all say it together. What's the first word of the first verse of Isaiah 40? Say it with me. Comfort. What is the second word of the first verse of chapter 40? Say it with me comfort. In case you didn't get it the first time, there is comfort available for exiles. That's the first verse of the sermon. It is this, that every helpless exile needs comfort. So if you've ever thought you needed some comfort, there's good news available. Let me give you a definition of the word comfort. Here it is. Comfort is compassion that relieves homesickness, restores hope, 
and redirects my attention to the greatness of God. And that was what Isaiah was speaking to the exiles in Israel who were going into Babylon. And that is still God's word to the exiles who were living in 2020 who are waiting for the kingdom of Christ to come. We need a relief from our homesickness. We need our hope restored and we need God to direct our attention to his greatness. So everything that Isaiah is going to write is intended for us to get our eyes off of our circumstances and on to the greatness of God. Notice he says in verse one, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. If you've ever thought of a, a God that's full of wrath and fury, if you're thinking of an Old Testament view of God where he has no mercy for his people, he's, if you're thinking of a God who do, is not tender, who doesn't have love, if you think that's the God of the Old Testament, let me introduce you to Isaiah chapter 40 because the message that God is trying to send to people who are in exile is one of comfort. It's one of tenderness. He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended. Warfare. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what Peter commented on. You're in a warfare with the passions of your flesh. And Isaiah envisions a day where the warfare is going to be over. Now the warfare that the people of Israel were uh, in was a self-inflicted warfare. It was judgment that was coming on them because of their sin. The warfare that we're in as exiles in a New Testament sense is one where we've been delivered from the penalty of our sin. We're waiting for the deliverance of this body of sin that we still dwell in. So he says there's a day when the warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned. The iniquity that she was guilty of, we've studied this, is she was worshiping created things. They had trusted in, in things other than God. And the promise here is that Israel's iniquity is pardoned. It's a great word. And yet you and I should be asking, how is God, a holy God, going to declare a guilty people innocent of their iniquity? How does God do that? Now we're gonna have to wait 13 chapters to find out how that happens, but Isaiah 53, which we will get to sometime in the year 2021 or 2022. We're going to get to that, but we're going to have to hold on to it. We're anticipating it. But he says, her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from me from the Lord's hand double for all of her sin. It's in verse 3. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. If you're familiar with your Bible, you know that this is exactly what was fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist who went before Jesus, the cousin of Jesus, who preached to prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming. You, the one you've been waiting for, he's coming. And so Isaiah is telling us, there is a coming king, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Notice, these exiles shouldn't be focused on preparing a highway out of their exile. They should be focused on preparing a way for the Lord to come and meet them in their exile. Prepare that kind of highway. 
Verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places are plain. Andrew and I were out in Colorado uh, last month and we drove on this highway and it was very clear that the highway, there were places where the mountain had to be brought lower and the valleys had to be brought higher and the crooked places had to be straightened. That's what you do when you build a highway. The message is there is no obstacle that is going to be insurmountable for this coming king. Verse four, every, we read that, verse five, and the, this is the best part, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The glory of God that they were waiting for, remember, this was written 700 years before the first Christmas, and they were waiting for the glory of God to be revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, the messianic king that would set up his kingdom. And John tells us that that glory filled the person of Jesus Christ. And we are waiting for the day on this side of that first Christmas that the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, which we read about last week. And then notice it says, all flesh will see it. The glory of God was not just something for the nation of Israel. It wasn't just contained in the temple in Jerusalem. This promise was that all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the earth would one day see the glorious greatness of our God. And then verse six says, a voice says, cry. And I said, I, uh, what shall I cry? This is what you're supposed to cry. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're grass. How many of you, steeple, how many of you, how many of you still mow your own grass? Raise your hand if you are the one who mows your own grass. How many of you delegate that to someone that is got more energy to do that? I'm watching Matt and Michelle down here. This is hilarious. Matt's like, I delegate it to Michelle. Michelle's like, I like to mow the grass. It's like, great. So it's therapeutic for those of us that spend our time here at church. Anyway, if, you're, if, you, if you mow your own grass, you know this, this concept of what it's talking about. There's a season where grass grows so fast, it's hard to even keep up with it. You can almost see it growing. This is not that season, by the way, if you notice that. This is the season where the grass doesn't grow. It stops growing. In a sense, it dies. God has built into nature a signpost for human beings. Pay attention to the grass. There, because you're like the grass. There's a season where you thrive and you grow and, and everything is strong and you're reproducing and then there's this season where you die. That's what he says in verse eight. The grass withers, the flower fades. How many of you right now are in that season where you're withering and you're fading? And it's like, I remember where I used to grow and I remember where I looked better than I do now, but I, I, I'm, yeah, this is the cycle of life. 
And here's what he says to people who are like grass at the end of verse 8. But the word of the Lord our God will stand forever. The grass needs to have good ears because the word of God is speaking to people who are like grass. You need to understand you are transient. There's going to be weakness. There's going to be weariness. There's going to be seasons of exile. There's going to be seasons where you feel uncomfortable in this world. And it's in those seasons that we need to hear the power and the promises of God. Every helpless exile needs comfort. Here's the second thing. Every forgetful exile needs reminders. It's not that we don't know these things about God. It's just that we're so forgetful. If I do my job right, you do your job right, you're probably not going to hear anything new in this message. You're like, I knew that. I've heard that before. And it's exactly what Isaiah is saying. He's like, I'm not telling you anything new. You know this. Look at verse 9. He says, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, and Herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, these three words, underline them, greatest words. Get your eyes on this. Behold your God. Get your eyes on the greatness of your God in seasons when you are in exile. Look at verse 10. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Did you think that the God, was, the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath and fury and anger? Does that sound like the God of wrath and fury and anger? There is that side of him for those who are his enemies, those who refuse to trust in him. But for those who trust him in seasons of exile, he comes tenderly. He speaks compassionately. And he speaks comfort because we tend to forget and so he reminds us. So the way that he reminds his people in Isaiah 40 is he gives them a test. He asks them questions. We're going to see some questions that God asks of us as exiles. Now let me just tell you, anytime in Scripture when God asks a question, you understand this? It's not because he doesn't know the answer. He's not like trying to get an answer from you. He knows the answer. He's like a good teacher. Your good teachers, the good teachers you had, they want you to get the answers right on the test. So here's the first question on the test for exiles who need comfort. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? He gives us some word pictures here that help us understand the greatness of God. So he talks about a hollow of our hand. Everybody take your hand and make a hollow. Everybody do that? All right. Have you ever tried to hold water in your hand? Just, just like, have you tried that? How good are you at that? Did, how many of you have noticed that your hand is a little leaky? It's hard to hold water in your hand, right? But he uses this word picture to help us understand something about God, and he uses this metaphor of a human hand. God says he holds all the water 
in the hollow of his hand without losing a drop, by the way. Did you know that there are 340 quintillion gallons of water on the earth? You say, no, I did not know that. I didn't know that either until I, I worked hard this week. I don't know what you were doing. I did a little research and found that there are 340 quintillion gallons of water on the earth. God says, I got every drop right there. Now, now what, what were you concerned about? Because whatever you were concerned about, I got that right there. He's got the whole world in his hands, including whatever your hardest thing was this week. He goes on and he says, um, he's marked off the heavens with a span. Who has marked off the heavens with a span? The word heavens there is speaking of the, the universe. Everything in the universe that's ever been created, God has marked off with a span. What's a span? Everybody take your hand and do that. I want you to spread your thumb and your pinky finger as far as it will go. You got to spread apart there. Now I realize this is subjective. Some of you have some very large hands and some of you have some very small hands, but this, a span is the distance between the tip of your thumb and the tip of your pinky finger. That's a span. And God says, I have measured everything I've ever created in all the universe in the distance between the tip of my thumb and the tip of my, I got, I got all that right there. Now, we don't measure things in spans. We measure the universe in light years. Do you remember back to ninth grade? You remember, remember when you first learned about a light year? A light year is the distance that light can travel, the distance that sound can travel, the distance that, all right, let me read it because I'm messing it up here. Light years are uh, that, uh, the distance that light can travel. I've totally messed this up. It's not even, I got it right in the first service. You'll have to view the first service for me to get this right here, okay? So here's what I'm trying to say. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second, okay? So everybody snap your finger one time. Do it. All right, so here's how fast light travels. Light traveled around the earth eight times in the time it took for you to snap your fingers. So we measure the universe in light years. The distance that light travels in a year traveling at the speed of light, okay? So that means that um, if you left earth right now on a journey to the sun, I wouldn't recommend that by the way, um, in December it's tempting, but um, if you were on your way to the sun, it would take you eight and a half minutes to get to the sun if you were traveling at the speed of light. That means the sun actually could have exploded and burned up eight minutes ago. We wouldn't know it for another 30 seconds. All right. God says, I measure the universe in the span of my hand. Did you know that if you were to go on this journey throughout the solar system, that um, it would take you just a day to reach the end of the, our solar system, traveling at the speed of sight. 
the speed of light, 24 hours. If you were to continue to travel to get to the next closest star, it would take you 40 years traveling at the speed of light to reach the next closest star. To reach the next closest star, it would take you 80 years. To reach the end of the Milky Way galaxy, it would take you 100 million years. It would take you 100 billion years to get to the end of the known universe, just what we know is out there. God says, I got all that right there. Have you not heard? Have you not known? Do you not remember the creative power of this God? He goes on in verse 12 and he says, who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in its balance. So God is not only the God of the big things in the universe, God is God of the small things in the universe, like dust. Dust would have been the smallest thing that Isaiah would have known about, right? Have you ever cleaned your house really good? Just somebody say, yeah, I did that like three years ago and did that. And then after you cleaned it, there was a, a beam of sunlight that went through the window. And what'd you see? You saw the dust flying around, right? It's like, this is not clean at all. God says he knows where all of that dust is and orchestrates it to go wherever he wants it to go. We know things that are smaller than dust, like atoms now, because we have microscopes and we can see. Do you know about the atom? It has a nucleus and a proton and a neutron and an electron. Do you remember all this? Aren't you glad you came to church? Yeah, and there's space in between the protons that are orbiting around the, the nucleus there. Did you know that if you were to reduce all the atoms in your body, eliminating all the space in between the protons and the neutrons and the electrons, if it was just the matter involved, you could take all the matter in your body and it would fit on the head of a pin and tragically you would still weigh as much as you currently weigh. And the only thing that it would take to annihilate you would be for God just to stop the orbit of one of those atoms within you. God speaks you into existence and he has the power to speak you out of existence. God holds all that together. Skip down here and notice uh, verse 25. It says, this test continues. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. What are the these that he's talking about? When you look up in the sky in the middle of the night, the permanent cloud's not there. What do you see? You see stars. He says, who brings out their host in number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Many years ago, a scientist decided he would chart the stars. He did a very extensive study and he proudly announced to the rest of the scientific world that there were exactly 595 stars because he counted them. Years ago, that claim was disputed and somebody did his own charting and he said, no, you're completely wrong. There are 598 stars. And then someone invented a telescope and we were able to improve on the telescopes. And the further that we looked into the galaxies, we realized that those stars that we thought we were looking at were not stars. 
they were galaxies themselves. Scientists estimate that just within the Milky Way galaxy, there are 100 billion stars. Now, can you think about naming those? At this time of year, you know, when you're looking for trying to buy a gift for the person that has everything, have you ever heard those radio announcements that that you can, like, the International Star Registry, and for $39.95, you can name a star? I mean, can you imagine? Like, okay, Bob. And God just sitting back and laughing. It's like, that's not its name. I know its name. I named it years ago. Every single star. If you were to try to name all of those stars, if every person on the earth had a million books, the thickness of a Webster's Dictionary, there would still be not room in those books to write all the names of those stars. What is God saying? If this God is intimately involved in his creation down to naming every single star, don't you understand that he cares about you? Someone that he's created in his own image, the stars aren't even created in his image. And you are. And you're dearly loved. And he knows that you're uncomfortable. And he knows you feel the homesickness. And he knows what it's like to send his people into exile. And yet there's hope for exiles if they will only remember who their great God is. Look at verse 27. He asked another question. This one's a lot more personal. This one's a little convicting. God apparently has been listening in on our conversations, and he's heard us asking two questions among ourselves. Here are the two questions. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? First question, or first accusation. My way is hidden from the Lord. Does, doesn't he see me? Doesn't he know? Doesn't he, doesn't he care? That's the second accusation. My right is disregarded by my God. So they're complaining that as they're in exile, God's not paying attention. Or even if he's paying attention, he's not doing anything about it. So God is calling them into question and saying, listen, your, your complaints are just the evidence that you have lost perspective on God's greatness. Here's the third thing. Exiles are weary, and every exile, every weary exile needs strength. Verse 28 was one of the first verses that I ever memorized as a Christian. I can remember, uh, it's probably like 1983, and I went over to my friend Jonathan's house, and he just bought this new Christian album by a guy named Phil Driscoll. How many of you know who Phil Driscoll is? And you're hearing the trumpet play in your head right now as I talk about Phil Driscoll. And I remember he turned this song on, and it was based on this verse, and Phil Driscoll, just in his raspy voice, he just said, haven't you heard? Don't you know? That the God, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he's not weary. He's not tired. And so let's read it here in verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Those two questions imply that they have known and they have heard. They've just forgotten. 
These are things that we already know. These are things that we've already heard. As a matter of fact, some of the first things you heard if you grew up going to church were the things that Isaiah is trying to remind people who are now in exile to remember. The things we teach our children are the things that they're going to need later when they discover they're living in exile. Remember what you know. Remember what you've heard. The first things you knew, the first things you heard. The Lord is the everlasting God. Just think about that for a second. God never had a beginning. He knows everything that has ever happened. Not only is he God of eternity past, he's the everlasting God, so he will never have an end. God knows and conducts everything that will ever happen. He is the everlasting God from beginning to end. Nothing in the past or in the future is outside of his knowledge. God is not bound by time or space like you and I are. The fact that he's everlasting means that he is still the same as he has always been and as he's always revealed himself to be. The God that is revealed for us in an ancient book that was written thousands of years ago is still the same God who is in operation for exiles who are living in 2020. Not only is he the everlasting God, eyes on the page, and the next thing it says is he is the creator of the ends of the earth. If you're like me, grew up in public school, went to secular college, and you sat through classes that tried to unravel your understanding of God as a creator who intelligently has designed the world and everything in it. And if that somehow has unraveled your understanding that you are creature and he is creator, then it's no wonder you fear when things go wrong and it's no wonder we live with anxiety and worry in this world. Isaiah wants us to remember he's the creator of the ends of the earth. And not only is he the creator, he's the sustainer and the ruler of everything he's created. He's got the power to speak things into existence. And God made the whole world, everything in it. There's no person or people group or nation or ruler outside of his control. God has limitless control over nature, over weather, over birth, over death. God has limitless power and control over every microorganism that lives on you. Creepy thought. And in you. God has complete control over all of it. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. The next thing it says, it says, God does not faint or grow weary. Anybody a little weary, a little exhausted in here? Do you know that what you're experiencing, God's never experienced? He's never gotten tired. And that's amazing because he works a lot. The fact that he does not grow weary means that he's still able to do everything that he's ever done. God has never been worn out. He's never been run down. God never gets tired and God never needs sleep. Think about that. 
How many of you have slept in the last 24 hours? Really? You're really that weak? You pathetic people. Like, you can only go for about 16 hours before your body starts to shut down and you have to go unconscious for eight hours. And do you know what's happening while you're unconscious? God is controlling and operating and working in the universe without your participation. God built into human existence something to remind us of how needy we are. The fact that we can't run for more than about 16 hours without shutting it off. And God's never needed sleep. He never gets weary. And none of his power is ever diminished through any work. It says he doesn't grow weary. It says God's understanding is unsearchable. Think about his understanding. He's got perfect understanding. He has no problems. God has no worries. God's never experienced stress. God's never been confused. I've asked you this before, but has has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to God? He's got complete understanding of everything. Nothing is ever complex to him. He's never had a loose end he needed to tie up. God has never faced a deadline. God has never been stressed about any circumstance beyond his control. God has acted with exacting precision in every detail, in every moment in human history, and in every realm of the universe. God has complete understanding. And it says his way is unsearchable. That's a warning to us. Be careful how you respond, you will never be able to search out all the things God knows or God does. His way is beyond comprehension. I'll never be able to understand the mind of God. Anything I might perceive as injustice is not being overlooked by God. No perceived evil in this moment can be attributed to any weakness or failure of God. Anything that I can't resolve in my mind has already been resolved in the mind of God. Haven't you heard? Haven't you known that the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And verse 29, he gives. Listen, the Bible should have stopped at verse 28 because I don't deserve to receive anything from God. I am a speck of dust on the canvas of creation and yet this unsearchable God, verse 29, tells me he's a God who gives me what he has and what he has is power. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might He increases strength. Verse 30, even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. I want to do a little experiment in the room right now. If you are under the age of 30, would you please stand right now? We want to see all you people. Stand if you're under the age of 30. I see you. All right, stand up, stand up. All right, now first of all, um, all 
that's a pretty cool thing. It's like the church is like filled with all these young people. Why are y'all here? Oh, we built a building for you, didn't we? Okay, so look at all these. Look, I just want you to look around. If you are over the age of 30, just look. Just don't be embarrassed. Just make eye contact with these people. Look how fresh they look. I mean, don't they look strong and healthy? And then for those of you that are still seated, don't you remember when you looked that good, right? Now, if you're standing, I want you to look at some of the people that are seated right now. Your day's coming, okay? So that's what you're gonna look like soon. But Isaiah is making the contrast here. Whether you are young or whether you are old, you do not have sufficient power. You can be seated. Isaiah is telling us that even the young men will fall exhausted. Verse 31 says, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. God is not only the creator, he is the re-creator. He is the re-creator of youth. He's the re-creator of power. He's the sustainer. And the oldest person in the room who waits for the Lord is stronger than the youngest person in the room who does not. The key is not your age. The key is waiting. Verse 31, they who wait for the Lord. The word wait means trust. It means hope. It means anticipate. It means looking forward to the next advent. It is living with future realities in mind. It's living with the fact that I'm an exile now. That's a temporary state. God is going to bring the people out of exile. And they that wait for that will have their, their hope and their strength and their power renewed by God. So let me ask you, how are you at waiting? Some of you are like freaking out right now because I didn't say anything for five seconds. I'm like, say the next word. I can't wait. I can't wait. What's he going to say? What's he going to say? Listen, are, are you the person that when the person in front of you, the light turns green and they don't move in like 0.5 seconds, you are on the horn? I'm like, yeah, I got places to go, people to see, right? How are you doing at waiting? You like standing in line and waiting for Jesus. The key to comfort is worshiping while we wait. We are living in exile. We are longing for a place where we've never been. We're uncomfortable here, but we're waiting for the day where that reality will come true. He says in verse 31, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, so apparently there is a soaring while we wait. They shall run and not be weary. There's a sprinting while we wait. And there is a walking. They shall walk and not faint. Some days all you can do is just put one foot in front of the other. But notice standing still is not part of the formula. There's a movement, and with every step, we are getting closer to the day where the exiles will see the fulfillment of the promise and the power of this great God. 
So let me ask you, are you exhausted? Are you tired? I mean, physically, emotionally, mentally, are you tired of pandemics and tired of shutdowns and tired of mitigating a virus and tired of your children not being able to go to school? What exhausts you? Do you know what the most exhausting experience is for a human being? Sin. Sin is the most exhausting experience. And so the promise of strength and power is for those who will respond to the power of God. What are you going to do in response to this great God who speaks a word of comfort and tenderness? The only those who repent of sin receive the comfort. Only those who admit, I'm exhausted, I don't have the power to make it on my own, are those that are willing to reach out for the power of God. And this power is not a power to take you like from a level four power to a level eight power. This is a power for those who have no power, who have no strength. Not so that we could be renewed in our strength as much as it is to be made new, first of all. So if you are in bondage to this world, if you are in bondage to sin, admit how exhausting that sin is and come and embrace the comfort of God's grace. Because one day Jesus went to the cross for all who are weak. He made himself weak so he could make those of us who are weak strong. Would you stand right now? I wanna pray for you and then we're gonna sing as we go out of here probably with more passion and joy than we sang coming in here because now we're responding to the greatness of our God. Let's pray together. Heads bowed, eyes closed. And whether you're here in the room or you're at home, just quiet your heart. I want to invite those of you that are viewing at home right now, just bow your heads, close your eyes, shut out the distraction. Let the comfort of the Lord be made real to you. Would you right now just admit whatever is exhausting to you? It could be just the responsibilities of leading a family. It could be the responsibilities of leading a company, leading a church. Why don't you bring all of that weakness to the Lord? Offer it to Him. Acknowledge the greatness of God. You are the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. You never faint. You don't grow weary. Your knowledge is unsearchable. Thank you, God. I need your power. I need your strength. For others of you, your, your life really is exhausting you because the patterns of your life are sinful. They're being lived apart from God. You're worshiping created things rather than responding to the Creator as His creature. Why don't you repent of that? Invite Him to renew your strength. If you're a young person here today, the temptation for you is to rely on your own strength 
your own good looks, your friends, all that you've got going for you. I just want to appeal to you. Don't wait until you're old and broken down to learn to rely upon the power of God. Father, we acknowledge who you are. You are a great, almighty God. It blows my mind even that I can form words that somehow land in your ear and you respond to a speck of dust like me. God, would you come in power? I pray for my friends that are exhausted. We need you. We lay all of our strength down. We embrace our weakness. We pray that your power would be what sustains us. It would be your joy that brings us joy. It would be your pleasure that we live for. You are the everlasting God. Renew our strength. We want to experience what it feels like to mount up with wings like eagles and soar even through a time of exile like this. We give you glory. God, bring your power to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.